Legacy Builders, strategies for building successful family enterprises. Brought to you by Beacon Family Office at Asante Financial Management Limited. I'm your host, Corey Gagnon. And on this show, we explore global ideas, concepts, and models that help family enterprises better navigate the complexities of family wealth. Let's dive right in and start learning how to take control of your wealth and realize the lasting legacy you're intentionally working towards. Together, we're building legacies. Today, I'm excited to introduce our esteemed guest. Set to shed light on the intersection of philanthropy and family enterprise. My goal is to be the most curious person in today's conversation with Gina Rothstein, a leading figure in Canada's social enterprise and philanthropy realm. Gina's journey is genuinely inspiring. Through her collaboration with Richard Ouellette, Carmen Sense emerged as an innovative social impact lab. Gina's story is colored by her unique perspective as a member of the rising generation, a cohort redefining wealth's purpose. With over 25 years of philanthropy management and a master's in nonprofit management and Jewish communal service and a family enterprise advisor, she seamlessly blends family enterprise wisdom with her philanthropic dedication. Coming from a family business background, Gina's insights span legacy, growth, and societal impact. Her guidance to ultra-high net worth families weaves family values, financial success, and social change. Today, Gina, we're honored to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Are you ready to share your wealth of experience and insights with our audience? Absolutely. Awesome. Let's dive in. Uh, Gina, imagine you're delivering a commencement speech to a graduating class, and you have the chance to inspire them with your story. How would you begin your speech to convey the incredible lessons and expertise you've gained along your career? So it's pretty daunting to think about inspiring others with uh, my own personal story. But the one thing I would leave people with is about embracing failure and not being afraid to talk about what happens when things don't go the way that you plan. Okay. And tell me more how that fits into your story. Oh, sure. So I think any business owner in their entrepreneurial journey has had failures. Um, in Canada, we tend to not talk about them a lot. And so uh, it's always like a trial by fire. And I think that when we think about failure, failure is actually one of the best, if not the best learning tool that we have out there. And so uh, whether you are um, part of the rising generation and taking on new leadership roles within an already existing family enterprise or family operation, or you're just about to start on your own journey, um, really getting like embracing the fact that it's not all going to go the way that you plan it to go. Um, and uh, being comfortable in that unknown space. And it takes practice. Absolutely. So, yeah, that, that's really like in my own personal experience, that's when I have dove into really immersing myself in why did this not work? I came out the other side way stronger than when I ran away from or I went in with some fear or trepidation to the challenge that was in front of me. Right. And, and so many people are willing to share their success stories. And we, you know, in our culture, it's, it's so common, but actually sitting down and talking about struggles and 
how difficult it is to get to where people have have gotten and be it small failures or large uh i think that in this day uh, we're still not there absolutely and i mean that could be a whole other podcast absolutely <laughs> i've got stories it could be a whole other podcast oh that's great gina with with your 25 years of experience in in philanthropy can you give a little bit of a, a story of you know how you you got to where you're at uh in your journey today with the work that you're doing at Carmen's and yeah absolutely so I was living in a community called Maplewood New Jersey working for the Jewish community uh outside of Manhattan when 9-11 happened and um the majority of my donors husbands worked at Cantor Fitzgerald so for those of you who know, Cantor Fitzgerald was on the top two, three floors of the World Trade Center. And we all know what happened with the World Trade Center. And so all of a sudden, my major donors became frontline recipients of the services that they had been supporting. And a lot of them, because I was running a women's uh, division for the Jewish Federation, um, a lot of them really had no idea where their money came from, how it was managed, how their households were run. It just happened. And so um, when I was reflecting back on what had happened in 9-11, and that's, you know, within 24 hours, George Bush had been asked by a reporter, what should we do? And he said, go shopping. Um, <laughs> I was like, I understood where he was coming from. It's a very economic financial decision and directive. But people don't fly airplanes into buildings because they can't go shopping. Yeah. There's like a whole other systemic issue there. And then when you layer that with the women who were, we're talking about major donors. So the minimum donation that they were making to our campaigns was $1,800 at a minimum. And it went up as high as, you know, several hundred thousand. Um, when they don't know how that money ended up in their bank account to make that charitable transaction and their president is telling them to go shopping as the balm for the crisis that just ensued. Um, I, I was like, there's something wrong with this system. And, uh, originally I thought the problem was that charities weren't articulating their stories effectively to address the social issues that would drive somebody to fly an airplane into a building. Uh, and when I came back to Canada, that was the approach that I took to my consulting practice was to work with organizations to help them really talk about the impact that they were having and why they were important. Um, and for those of you who were in Alberta in the early 2000s, like money was flowing in the streets. Absolutely. And I quickly realized that the problem wasn't that charities weren't telling their stories effectively. The problem was that donors weren't asking the right questions and they weren't asking the right questions. Going back to the earlier point is that if they don't fully understand the ecosystem of wealth, how are they going to understand the ramifications of the, the impact that philanthropy can have in a market? And it was around the early 2000s that we also started to hear out of the UK um, stuff around social enterprise, social purpose businesses. It didn't really become part of the Canadian lexicon until about a decade later. But it was in those early 2000s that I started to rethink 
how we do the business of philanthropy. And I stopped advising to charities altogether. Um, I was working for a nonprofit management consulting firm and quit that job and really went full steam into helping donors set up their charitable giving strategies with an intention to really understand the ramifications of their giving, the ripple effect of their of their charitable activities. Because at the end of the day, all philanthropy is political. And so if we if we aren't clear about how money is flowing into what areas and why we have the consistent crises that we have, whether it's housing or food security or mental health or whatever is the sexy of the day, then we're never going to solve those problems. And so um, my experience being a witness to the 9-11 and its aftermath uh, has really shaped the approach that I take when we work with families setting up their, their charitable giving strategies, because it's not just about charity. Right. That's the language that we use, yeah. but it's, that's not, that's not the, the 100% focus. Now, not that you would ever want to be the president of the United States, but <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to George Bush's uh, comments as, as president on that day. And really, it's discussion of leadership. Gina, if you were to be in that moment, what is it that you would have said or from your experience, maybe not talking to all of the American people, but let's just maybe say the the folks that were the most impacted within that uh, that area that you were in? Wow, that's a chutzpah question, as they would say. I don't think I have the balls to answer that. Um, I, I would actually de- probably deflect it to somebody who's better equipped because really like my perspective is really much on social system design and it's not on governing a nation or playing geopolitics. So I, I don't feel comfortable answering, answering that question in that, in the way you phrased it. Mm -hmm. But, but I think that if we were going to like, if, if we want to take ownership for those societal problems that we have. So right now the Northwest territories are under fire. Um, we have a war in Europe that is, has ramifications well beyond the borders of Russia, Ukraine. Um, we, you know, we have finally a government that recognizes that we have a housing crisis and this isn't a housing crisis for just the homeless population. This is a housing crisis for multiple generations. Uh, we have an aging population that we don't have a care system for. Um, and it, all of this is interconnected, right? right. So when, when, we adv- when we encourage farmers to sell their land to developers to build houses in a green belt, and we already know that we are facing a food security issue because we've lost 70% of our farms in the last generation and a half, we have a problem. We have a housing problem that has now morphed into a food security problem. When we see fires in the Northwest and, the, and literally glaciers melting, that means we're going to have a water problem. If we have a water problem, we have a food problem. Um, so we have to stop thinking about these issues in their own silos and we really need to start looking at how everything is interconnected and then move away from this bifurcated model 
of um, for-profit, non-profit, government. It's not even bifurcated now because now there's three of them. Right. Trifurcated, I guess. Um, we have to move away from that and really start looking at who is best positioned to solve these problems and how do we start to bring together all those who are best positioned, regardless of their corporate structure, to actually solve those problems. Right. And then and then we can figure out how to incentivize it, right? So sure. do we incentivize on the front end do we, with tax credits and, incent, and investment credits, or do we incentivize on the back end for performance on performance credits um, or, you know, like and anything in between uh, so that it's no longer this binary conversation of uh, or polarizing conversation of is climate change real? Like who cares now? Right. Who actually cares if climate change is real? The North is on fire. Yes. We have a water issue. We have a housing crisis. We have people who are moving around the world because of war. These are things that are happening now that could have been prevented two generations ago if we had the foresight to actually look at the interconnectedness of things. So now let's stop debating whether or not something is actually happening and actually start thinking about what does it look like for three generations from now? Because right. if we don't start looking three to seven generations from now, it doesn't really matter that the North is burning right today. Right. Because we're just not going to have the land. We're, we're just not going to be prepared. And. Gina, what are those questions a little bit out of the, the political leadership, but yeah. maybe more into the family leadership and uh, those that really can make a difference? What are the questions that you think they could be asking right now? Well, and I think everybody can make a difference. Absolutely. So I just want to be very clear. This yeah. isn't uh, only for a certain demographic to take this responsibility on. Um, and I don't even think it has to be leaders who are asking these questions. I think we as a human system, have an obligation to ask ourselves, what do we want to leave behind? And, you know, my grandfather, um, <clears throat> I come from a fairly large Jewish family in Calgary. And uh, my grandfather was an immigrant and self-made and very much part of that um, you know, Jewish story of on the prairies. And the one thing that I learned from him is that you, you can't take your money with you. Um, so he was, you know, maybe he did it purposefully, maybe he didn't, but that was the lesson that I learned from him. And so we have a legacy of our family that stems from him and his cousins and his brothers and his sister. Um, and there's a story there. And so what, what I think we can be asking ourselves today is like, what is it that we're caring? What pieces of our history are we choosing to take with us and put down and to carry down to the next generation? Um, there's a, a story about how, you know, you take this box and inside your box is everything that you bring with you. So from the old country, you might bring your candlesticks or in the Jewish community, you might have brought a Torah from the synagogue. But whatever's in this box is all this stuff that you you brought with you and it gets put in the attic. And then one day the next generation has to go and clean out the attic, which is a royal pain in the ass for those of us who have had to do similar things. Yep. And they pull out that box and they open it up and they're like, oh, I don't know the story behind this. I wish I had asked these questions. 
And so they start to put in their artifacts with no stories and it goes back into the attic. And then the next generation pulls that out and they're like, wow, we've got these candlesticks and we have an iPhone. And I don't know the story behind either of those, but I don't have anybody to ask. So I'm just going to put my own stuff in. And, and there's no continuity aside from having these artifacts. And so what we as just, again, the human system or as family leaders, if you want to call it family leaders, our job is to make sure that we put the tags on those artifacts that tell the stories of why they're in there. Why right. were those candlesticks important? Why was that iPhone part of the, the zeitgeist um, or whatever it is? And it could be because there's pictures on there and, you know, they didn't know how to take the pictures off, um, which is like there's there's these experiences that everybody has. And so. um. I think that that's the responsibility that we have, uh, whether you call yourself a leader or you're part of the rising generation or you're not even in a family network system at all, but you're just a human living on this planet. Um, we have an obligation to really understand why we're doing what we're doing and what we want to leave behind and being really conscious about what it is that we're leaving behind. Right. Yeah, that in intentionality for sure. and. Going back to your grandfather and his story, Gina, tell me a little bit more of, you know, you can't take it with you uh, because that statement is said by many and has such different meanings. Where do you think that his story fits in? Yeah. So I think for us or the way that I've interpreted it is um, he set it up so that we would be safe. Right. So he knew he wasn't going to take it with him. Yep. Uh, he came from nothing. He made himself what he made himself his cut there's and there's like you know the immigrant saga um and when he passed away we you know we had our own like many families we had stuff that we needed to take care of and he made sure that we were taken care of um that doesn't mean you know warren buffett says how or somebody asked warren buffett about inheritance and legacy and he said you should leave enough for your kids that they'll do something but not so much that they won't do anything yeah that's the idea Right. It's, you know, empower your raise the next generation to be able to lead or make decisions or create something new or be a contributing member of society in whatever way, shape or form that reflects itself. But not but don't disempower them by by um, giving them too much so that they can't fail. So going back to our original conversation or the original question. When I say embrace failure, if we don't let people fail, they will never learn how to succeed. Right. Um, we have made a series of societal failures and we have set up a system to address those failures that's duct taped and paper clipped together. And then we've said to the charitable sector, you go solve it. But by the way, we're going to under resource you because we feel guilty or there's some sort of, you know, weird approach to why charities can't actually be fully sustainable to solve these complex problems. Uh, and then we're going to reward people by giving them a tax credit for giving to these organizations, but only the ones that they think are sexy or only the ones that fit their political lens. And then the other ones have to go and scramble and try and figure out where they're going to get their next dollar. Uh, like it's the, the whole system, it, the way we've set up these complex, this, the solution space is not actually based on failure. Right. It's based on a whole bunch of potential pilot projects. We are the graveyard of pilot projects in the charitable sector. 
Um, and we keep reinforcing that model because there's so much ego tied into philanthropy, right? So uh, when we think about, you know, why do we keep repeating these same, pro- these same solutions and expect this different result? We have, however many shelters are out there, domestic violence shelters take up 89% of domestic violence budget donation dollars but they solve 8% of the problem. Wow. Right? So that was a stat that came out in, I think, 20... It was before COVID, so time has blurred together. Sometime around 2017, right? So we, we have an edifice complex. We understand when you put money into a shelter, you're going to get something out of it. There will be a building, and there will be stuff happening inside that building. Right. Whether or not that stuff that's happening in that side of that building is actually addressing the fact that we have a gender-based violence problem that is rooted in a whole bunch of other stuff, whether it's the immigrant story or colonization or, um, you know, multi-generational abuse or poverty, like all the things that lead to gender-based violence. Gender-based violence doesn't just happen. Right. Uh, There's a whole bunch of things that trigger that. And so as philanthropists, when we think about how are we going to solve these big, meaty problems, and we're only going to look at it from these siloed solutions because that's how the system has been set up, we're never going to solve them. We really need to start embracing the failure of what has not worked in those siloed solutions and come up with some reasonable approaches to managing the failure so that we can actually get beyond them. Cause all we're doing now is just repeating. Gina, let's go back to your comment about how you talked about your, your grandfather and making sure that you're safe. And you also then made, made mention of the duct tape solutions and, you know, society has, has set ourselves up where we can't, actually realize that something isn't going to work and instead we just tape things together and instead of tearing it apart and knowing that we're going to be okay and that part of of the system can still work with a new solution where do you think that starts how how do you think we could have those solutions where we're okay that what we know today and that comfort zone we're in is it's just not tomorrow's solution. Well, I think we all have to start with why, right? Simon Sinek has the three golden circles. So why, how, what? Um, and uh, once we understand our own personal why, like why are we doing this? Why are we trying? What's our mandate? What is our raison d'être? Uh, once we understand that, then we can start designing how we want to show up in the world and what we're going to do to get there. Um, and I think that we've, we've put certain things at the center of the system that are not the why, right? So it might be uh, when we talk about healthcare, we've said, well, the why is the doctors. Well, no, the why are the patients. We have to create a system that actually helps patients. When we talk about moving people on bicycles and putting bike lanes in, it's not about bike lanes. It's about how do we move people 
where they need to get to in the most efficient manner. Um, it's not about cars. It's not about moving cars. It's actually about moving people. Uh, and so figuring out what needs to be at the center of each one of those questions and then designing or again, the solutions are out there. There's 90,000 charities and another 160,000 nonprofits just in Canada. If we look at the United States, there's 1.6 million charities in the U.S. And they're, they categorize charities and nonprofits differently, so I'm not going to get into it. But we have the solutions out there. We just need to start connecting the dots between those who are doing really cool stuff and actually have a scalable model with those who have identified the problem and just need the right connection point to get their solution connected to another solution. So we build that conduit or that bridge. Um, and, but so once, once we figure out our why, then we can figure out where we want to put ourselves within those complex issues. Now, going back to your, your comment of Warren Buffett, there's, there's a lot of connection there of other very wealthy individuals that have committed a lot of money to the charitable sector and, uh, to solving problems. Mm -hmm. How is it that people can, can get to that point? And with the wealth that Warren Buffett has, you know, it is at a maybe a different caliber, but still, you know, when people have abundance and they've realized that they can create that safety for their family, what's the next step? So when we get called in to work with families to help them set up their foundations, we don't start with a dollar amount. We actually help them figure out their why and what the roadmap would look like to get to that solution. So um, when we think about gender-based violence, well, we didn't start with the gender-based violence. We got there eventually, but as we iterated on different um, aspects within the giving portfolio, we realized that if we only focused on domestic violence, we're not going to solve the root problem. If we only focused on the role of girls in sports, we're not going to get to the problem. If we don't look at how, you know, how does human trafficking play into this? Like, there's a whole bunch of things at play that affect, as I mentioned before, gender-based violence. So when we sit down with a family, we help them figure out their why. We figure out what it is that, like, what's their time horizon? So is this a single generation solution? Is this a multi-generation solution? Uh, we figure out their geography and their scope. So how big, how wide, how deep? And then we talk about the dollars. Right. Because once we've figured out what, the salute, what that giving portfolio is going to look like or what that solution scape looks like over that time horizon, then we can start to say, oh, if you want to accomplish this on your own in this fashion, this is what it's going to cost. And obviously it's not a hard number, but it's, you, you, can, you can start to piece it together. But as I mentioned, these complex problems aren't solved by a single source solution. They are solved by having people connect to each other and ideas connect to each other and other solutions that are being done in other parts of the world connect together. And so when we sit down with families and they actually want to move the dial on a complex issue, it more often than not means that there's not, they're not the only ones coming to the table. Um, there's an organization in the States called Lever for Change and their whole mandate is to bring individual family foundations or individual donors together to solve complex issues by throwing by by throwing money into a pool, and then that pooled those pooled assets are 
deployed to complex solutions space, into the complex solution space. And so it's not your million dollars and my million dollars doing our own thing in gender-based violence. It's $2 million doing a hyper-focused solution that might bring together a group of organizations in gender-based violence. Um, because our multiple effect is better than our single effect on a couple organizations, if that makes sense. Yes. One plus one equals three. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's not a dollar amount, but it, it's a mindset. It's coming from a place of, of abundance or something around the story. And going yeah. back to sharing those stories, and if it's a, a single generation or maybe it's a generation that's that isn't even alive at the moment where things are being set up how does that story get shared between those generations and everything is driven by ego ego and all philanthropy is political right um so we don't start with thinking about five generations that's too daunting for most people we start with what do you want to see now on the day that you die, which is obviously within your lifetime, um, what do you want it to be on the day that you die? What do you want your solution, whatever the issue is that you're passionate about, what, what do you want that to look like? Um, and then we start to think about the next, the next level and the next level and the next level. So, you know, are we going to, can we solve a housing crisis in this generation? Absolutely. Will it take a lot of work and some egos putting aside and some change in policy and um, you know, leadership rethinking? Distinctly possible, uh, I would argue, in all essence, likely. Um, but we can, there's certain things that we're not going to be able to solve, right? Like those that that requires a whole bunch of other people who are not part of the philanthropic conversations to kind of get out of the way. So we have to work around it within the legislation. And the best way to do that is to start again, identifying the players that come to the table with a curious mindset, with a sense of empathy um, and who can make decisions without having to go and ask permission. And I think that having that agency is a critical keys to this to this problem uh to all these social problems um and just because you give yourself agency doesn't mean you have agency right right it has to be reinforced from the outside um and it's great that you like you have the the personal identity or the wherewithal to say that you know the solution and you've got the best solution but you also have to come to the table and possibly here that maybe there needs to be some tweaking or we take your solution and it gets applied in this way, which might not be how you originally intended. Right. Right. So it, it's, it, it's not a straight line. And, and again, that's why we don't start with the dollar amount. We, we do talk about money. Don't get me wrong. It, money comes up very early and very often. Um, but it's not the how, it's not how we start the conversation. We start the conversation with imagining. Um, and then, so going back to the essence of your question is like, what are the tools that we use? So some of it are visual tools. So we have one family where they created, um, a, a map, so to speak of 
all of their members and it went like it was a circular map and then underneath each member was like a little blurb and it just kept going out and out and out so it was more like a a sundial i guess in okay. a way i don't know how else to describe it um or a constellation model uh we've had others just do a linear timeline of their family history and put on their timeline inflection points that were really important to them um so their marriage birth of their first child, the death of their spouse, whatever it was, that had these uh, momentous or, you know, the, these moments that left these indelible marks in their psyche. Yep. Um, and then we have people who wrote, have, have already had books written about their family. They come from a family legacy that was either brought over from the, the old world or the old country or uh, in the case, we're doing um, some work with some indigenous uh, communities and their history is here. Like it's actually written on stone, on walls, in parks, like they have a history. And so how do we how do we honor those different ways of storytelling such that the inheriting generation actually understands what it is that they're being told? They're not just being handed a map with people's faces that they have no relationship to. Uh, or they're not going to a provincial park and they're seeing um, pictographs on a wall without having context for why those are there and what happened on those lands. Like we really, so, so our job as philanthropy advisors is as much about helping people set up their foundations as it is about capturing stories and, um, and honoring legacy and in um, you know it's the whole idea of it's not about your mother's pearls it's about her pearls of wisdom like how do we how do we use the artifacts that are in that box but actually make them a living story so that the next generation can pass this, those stories on it's it's not a not a one size fits all for any family. <laughs> right. Right. And Gina, we're, we're coming to the end of our conversation today. And before we wrap up today's episode, uh, there, there are a few questions that I ask each guest. Are you ready for the tough ones? The tough ones? The tough ones. Yeah. Oh, sure. All right. Um, now, what is one key strategy you believe is the most essential for building a successful family charitable giving strategy? The number one thing is know your why. So, yeah, 100%. And I highly recommend re reading Simon Sinek's book, Let's Start With Why. Or or watching his TED Talk. Or yes. watching his TED Talk. Yes, absolutely. And um, what is the most common challenge that you see family enterprises or family foundations encountering when it comes to wealth transition or generational continuity? So there's a couple of things, most especially is that there's a lack of financial literacy in the inheriting generation. Um, and so obviously that has ramifications beyond the foundation or the family philanthropy. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, there's um, this uh, in some families, because that box that they took out of the attic didn't have the stories tied to those artifacts. There's this lost history or lost memory. And so um, really trying to 
hone in or tap back into the fam the family values and the family history right will you know underlies or provides that foundational support okay and as far as you know maybe a strategy um for each of them i i think you know the family literacy might be a little easier than going back and uh and adding these stories to the box yeah and i mean none of this is easy right managing family whether you are the the patriarch or the matriarch or um you're the advisor in and working with and supporting to or in service of families is always challenging because people are challenging um so the strategies that i would say well when it comes to financial literacy please go find somebody who can who knows how to teach this in an effective manner such that whoever's at the table whether it's for yourself or your kids or your grandkids or whatever you all hear and learn together um definitely not my qualifications (laughs) i can help you give the money away (laughs) when you're ready um and then uh yeah, I, I think the the other piece is just, you know, start coming to the table with curiosity and asking questions. And uh, I remember as a kid, we had to do those family tree exercises in school. Yep. I don't know if they still do them, but if they do, like use those opportunities to really like share, sto- share stories. Um, we learn, we are, as, as a creature, we learn from storytelling. Right. So. Great. And. In your experience, what are the top three qualities that successful family enterprise leaders uh, possess? So, so any type of leader is one that comes to the table with curiosity, meaning that they don't know the answers to everything, but they ask really good questions. Uh, and being empathetic is another important quality. And, and I think that the third one is, um, being an active listener, like I know that's a catchphrase for some, but really taking the time to hear and respond. And it's not about parroting back. It's actually about internalizing what you hear and then reflecting back to the speaker to acknowledge that you heard them, but that you want to engage in more conversation. Um, I, I think those are the top qualities of a good leader. Awesome. And I appreciate you explaining a little bit more because, you know, some of those, sometimes those catchphrases mean so much, such different things to each person. So I I appreciate that. Uh, Before we conclude our discussion today, I'd like to to highlight some of the upcoming events uh, this fall where listeners can engage in more conversations with you. Uh, Gina, could you kindly provide us with some insights onto um, what you're up to this fall? Sure. So uh, at the start of COVID, we started this Zoom series uh, called In Conversation With, and we would bring in authors and prominent leaders in different industries to share their views on um, society, community, philanthropy, social impact investing, whatever the topic is. And so uh, we're continuing that on. And we have two this fall uh, on the books right now. So on September 13th, um, we have Paul Bourne, who is the founder and, and past CEO of the Tamarack Institute. 
And he is going to share his wisdom around how funders can fund uh, systems level change. Um, and then on November 15th, Peter Jazowick, who is a professor at the Telfer School of Business at the University of Ottawa, is going to be talking about enabling the next generation of leaders. And both of those are on Zoom and they're both at 10 a.m. Mountain. Fantastic. I wanted to make sure that uh, we covered everything today. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience that I didn't get to ask or we didn't get to touch on? So I think the one thing that we didn't talk about is um, the rise of Indigenous philanthropy, especially in Canada as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Movement. Um, a couple of years ago, Carmen Sense engaged uh, with a, a, a an Indigenous philanthropy advisor, and it has changed so much, not just about how Carmen Sense approaches some of our advising, but more importantly, how we help non-Indigenous funders fund into Indigenous solutions. Um, because the complex, like, again, all these complex social issues are not just because of one problem or one trigger, right? Like there was a series of triggers. And so, uh, and I know this could be a whole other podcast, but we really need to start as a, as Canadian philanthropists, I can't speak to the American side, but as Canadian philanthropists really understanding how does uh, non-Indigenous philanthropy shape the narrative around engaging in the truth and reconciliation process? Um, and how do we as non-Indigenous funders support the activities that of our uh, Indigenous brothers and sisters or communities that are part, that are our neighbors that are part of the, the Canadian mosaic. And so right. um, I, I just wanted to give a shout out to the work that David is doing because it's pretty, it's pretty awesome, actually. That's great. And I think going back to just even your, your comments of being sensitive to the way that, you know, you can't just throw money at a problem and hope that it, it solves it. Uh, knowing that the culture uh, or the, the dynamics in that part of society is, is extremely important in, in all of those, those programs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, we purposely hired David Turner to help us with this because it would be disingenuous for me to be, to advise a family on how to fund effectively into um, the first nations communities or the Métis community or uh, like it, it wouldn't work. And we know that it doesn't work. And so um, being very mindful of, of the approach to philanthropy is different in the First Nations communities or in an Indigenous community than, uh, than in our not European-centric approach. Right, right. Uh, well, I appreciate that. And, and thank you, Gina, for taking the time to share uh, your expertise and experiences with us today. Uh, your insights have been incredible incredibly valuable and we're grateful for your contribution to the episode my pleasure thanks for having me today we had the privilege of diving deep into the world of family wealth with gina rotstein i hope you found this conversation as enlightening and valuable as i did throughout our discussion gina shared incredible insights for building successful family charitable giving strategies and leaving a lasting legacy 
We explored a multitude of insightful perspectives, touching on several crucial takeaways. Notably, the conversation highlighted the imperative of viewing substantial global challenges as a collective issue demanding collaborative solutions, rather than relegating them solely to the domain of the charitable sector. This perspective shift underscores the necessity for a united effort in addressing these problems. Additionally, we discussed the value of embracing failure as a fertile ground for learning, the need for donors to reevaluate their questioning approaches, and a contemplative examination of the legacy we aspire to leave behind. Moreover, the conversation showed how our ego is connected to philanthropy and that this giving is always political. We also considered the intricate balance between guaranteeing family security without amassing excessive wealth that may stifle ambition. These multifaceted approaches and insights collectively painted a comprehensive portrait of the complexities inherent in philanthropy and its broader implications on your own journey of legacy building. I want to express my deepest gratitude to Gina for generously sharing her time, expertise, and knowledge with us. Gina's expertise in social enterprise and philanthropy brings a unique perspective to our exploration of family enterprises. Her insights have provided us with actionable strategies to take control of our wealth and build a lasting legacy. If you'd like to learn more about Gina and her services, you can find them at karmaandsense.com. I highly encourage you to connect with them to explore how their expertise can support your family enterprise on its path to success. Thank you for joining me, Corey Gagnon, your host of Legacy Builders Podcast. It's my personal passion to explore with you these topics related to family wealth. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred podcast platform. And don't forget to share this episode with family, friends, and colleagues who you care about. If you'd like to help support this show, you can do so by leaving a rating and review. If you have any questions about anything shared on today's episode, or have topics you'd like us to dive deeper into in future episodes, please let us know by emailing beaconfamilyoffice at asante.com. That's beaconfamilyoffice at A-S-S-A-N-T-E dot com. Legacy Builders, Strategies for Building Successful Family Enterprises is brought to you by Beacon Family Office at Asante. Are you worried about losing what you've created and seeking ways to transition your wealth across generations? Beacon Family Office at Asante supports our clients transition their wealth while maintaining relationships. If you'd like to access more content we've created, you can visit us at beaconfamilyoffice.com or for more details on our services and book an initial call. Thanks again for listening. And until next episode, stay intentional about building your legacy.
this program was prepared by Corey Gagnon, who is a senior wealth advisor with Beacon Family Office at Asante Financial Management Limited. This is not an official program of Asante Financial Management, and the statements and opinions expressed during this podcast are not necessarily those of Asante Financial Management. This show is intended for general information only and may not apply to all listeners or investors. Please obtain professional financial advice or contact us at Beacon Family Office at Asante.com or visit BeaconFamilyOffice.com to discuss your particular circumstances prior to acting on the information presented.